0: I want to give you a quote that I came across this week. Uh, one of the main Bible commentators I, I use, his name is James Hamilton. Um, and he, he wrote this as a part of the commentary for, uh, for this series here and for Revelation 2, 12 to 17. A little quote goes like this. It says this, We need to be convinced that we must never flirt with evil. We need to be convinced that we must never flirt with evil. These are not my words. These are his words. And to most of us, we hear those words, we read those words, and we think, well, duh. Of course we must never flirt with evil. Tell me something I don't already know. We need to be convinced that we must never flirt with evil. But that's not the emphasis in that statement. The emphasis in that statement is that first part of that statement, that we need to be convinced. Think about that for a second. We all agree that we must never flirt with evil. We all agree that sin is something we don't want to be party to and to have as a part of our lives. We've, we've experienced it. We've flirted with it. We know what it's like to have sin in our lives and to see the effects of it. We've all experienced the dangerous side effects of flirting with sin, of going up to the, you know, the edge and, and playing with darkness. And in fact, if we're honest, we have all jumped in headlong and temporarily enjoyed the short-term thrill of deeply sinful living. We all know that part of the equation, but it's the first half I think we need to consider. At some point in everyone's life, we must be fully convinced That we must never flirt with evil. And I believe that many of us are not yet convinced. We believe we can have our cake and eat it too. Like I'll have just a couple days of of binge sinning. Or a couple years of binge sinning. And then I'll get, get sober for work. Or get sober for my wife and kids. Or I'll just go on a few hours of binging on sexual immorality, and then I'll get right with my wife or my spouse later. Like I'll go with a a few days of binge reading that I know doesn't really glorify God and it's all about me, and then I'll come back later after I flirted with sin. And I think we do that because we're not really fully convinced. I don't think we really (laughs) are convinced. And here's how I know that many of us still need to be convinced that we must never flirt with evil. Because if we're honest, many of us would rather allow compromise with evil than deal with it. Both in our lives, personally, and in the lives of others. We'd really much rather allow compromise with evil than have to actually personally deal with it. And the truth is that the vast majority of us would much rather allow that to be the case. Dealing with compromise, friends, dealing with compromise, calling sin for what it is in our own lives and in the lives of others, is an intrusive, difficult, hard-to-be place that, frankly, most of us would really rather avoid and not ever have to deal with. And I think one of the main, the main points of the whole book of Revelation and And today's passage is that if we will open our eyes and if we will have ears to hear Then we will be aware that what is really going on in our lives and the lives of others And in this church body is that there is an epic spiritual battle for souls going on in the world And if we have ears to hear our master's voice Then we will join in the fray In that battle against sin But be forewarned friends That's going to mean it costs you everything. Because that's what discipleship looks like. That's when church becomes real. That's when being a part of the body of Christ is going to mean something that works in your heart. And not just as this like sort of Sunday morning one hour at a time play thing. Because, let's be honest, if we keep church and Christian community at arm's length as this one-hour-at-a-time kind of plaything that makes us feel good temporarily because I like these people and they like me, and that's the extent of my relationship, then we will not go to the place where compromise with sin is something that really annoys us and bothers us and changes. We'd really not have to deal with it. And it is into that kind of world where we live, where compromise is a daily option for us. It is into that world where we live that Jesus walks. The risen Jesus here, the resurrected Christ, who walks into that world, into our church, into our hearts, into our families, at your job, in your marriages, in your classes, in your small groups. And he wields a sharp two-edged sword of truth called the Word of God if we will allow our hearts to be open to that work. And if you allow your heart to be open to that work, then you're saying, I'm ready to deal with it. Because if we do not allow that Jesus, that kind of Jesus who wields a sharp two-edged sword, to pierce our hearts and to purge us of sin, in other words, to judge us now instead of later, <laughs> then without notice even, darkness takes over in our hearts often rather unaware we allow compromise to damage in fact our witness to the world and though they weren't quite there yet Jesus walks into this church at Pergamum and he warns them. He says, you're on that road. You're you're, you're on that road of compromise. You've been faithful to the world on the externals to the outside so far, but you are not far away from allowing that compromise to permanently damage that witness so that you will be a dead church too. Those are the stakes in these pages of Revelation. And they are the stakes in your own life. So read with me today here at Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read this together. This is in your study notes. got a few things to fill in as we go along. So let's let's read together Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now jump back to verse 12 there where we see Christ's commendation to the church. Before he confronts them, he commends them. Before he brings down the hammer, he says, you're doing this well. Before I tell you with the two-edged sword what you need to hear, I'm going to encourage you. So he encourages them, and he points out their strength as a church, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So this begins that first section in your study notes, where in verses 12 and 13, he tells them of their faithfulness. We'll get there in just a second. Let's look at verse 12 especially. A few things to point out here about verse 12. This is your second blank. Jesus comes to them with authority in verse 12. He comes to them with the authority of the risen Christ that we read about in chapter 1. In fact, at the very beginning of Revelation, I want you to turn there for just a second. Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2 This also points out the the authority of Jesus in what he's saying throughout these letters. It says this in Revelation 1 and 2, just read along if you can. The revelation of Jesus Christ, we'll see five different people involved here. The revelation of or from Jesus Christ, which God, there we go, that's number two, which God gave him to show to his servants, there's the third one, the things that must soon take place. And the two others involved in this transition, and this transmission of this information is he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So there's all five there. It goes from God the Father, to Jesus, to the angel, to John, to the churches. And because it goes to the churches, and there's more than just the seven churches in Revelation, and we know that it went to all the churches in that whole region of Asia, it also goes to us. So the authority that we're reading comes from God the Father himself. So this angel here that's speaking in Revelation 2 to the letter of the church here is representing Jesus' words, the word of God to these churches. And it is this word of God to these churches that is shown in this image there in verse 12 where it says in verse 12 of chapter 2, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. These are his words. That two-edged sword phrase there, is one of those phrases that that occurs in that risen Christ imagery in the first chapter, and it's pulled out from there and applied to this church here. So it's symbolic. This imagery of the two-edged sword—it's used throughout uh, the the Bible, but especially the New Testament—to talk about the Word of God and the way the Word of God works. It's symbolic of the piercing nature of the truth of God that hints at what this whole passage is really about. This isn't supposed to make you think that, you know, this picture of when Jesus comes, he's going to have a sword in his mouth. I mean, he may, but I think this is symbolic of what the Word of God does. Uh, He's not going to have a a sword coming out of his mouth. This is about Jesus getting into now the dirty and ugly nooks and crannies of our lives. the the, the places that are still inhabited by sin and continuing to work to root them out by his power as he fits us for heaven and for eternity with him. So the question now is whether you are open to that work of Christ. Either he does it in full power then and it hurts for the rest of one's eternal existence in fire or he does it now through the Holy Spirit. Those are the stakes. Don't miss this. (laughs) Those are the stakes in your life. God will come in power and make known His full glory and judge the world and no sin will exist in His presence. And either the Word of God pierces someone then, and they feel it for eternity without the presence of God, or we open ourselves now to the work of the Jesus who comes and pierces. It says it's written to the church at Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Pergamum may be the largest uh, ancient city you've never heard of, it was uh, the capital of all of Asia for 250 years. Hundreds of thousands of inhabitants. And uh, it had the second largest library in the world after Alexandria and was was well known for many temples. And, uh, and it was c- considered the gatekeeper, the sort of citadel of all emperor worship in the whole world. So in that day, Because Roman emperors were treated as gods and all who lived in the kingdom were demanded to worship these emperors, these Christians had this this difficulty, this frustration, this issue of having to work out their witness without worshiping the emperor. They considered themselves here in this city of Pergamum the gatekeeper of emperor worship. It became its own religion for these people, the pagans at the time there was this great altar uh, of Zeus the Savior, it was called, and there was temple after temple after temple in this city. When you approach this city, there was this great hill on which this Zeus the Savior uh, altar shone uh, from, from anywhere that you came, and they, they considered themselves sort of the great place where emperors were worshipped. So you can imagine that in verse 13, where it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I get that you are in a hard place. I get that you're in a place where the temptation to compromise is a part of your life daily. There would have been Christians in that day in Pergamum who would not be able to trade, not be able to make as much money if they had said yes to uh, the emperor worship. There were Christians in that day who were killed for their faith. We'll read about that in a second. So he says, I know where you dwell, verse 13, where Satan's throne is. In other words, I know, I know that pagan and godless culture happens around you. I know that many of you are losing business because you know, you're not declaring emperor as lord. You're, you're losing friends because you're not eating meat sacrificed to idols. He says, I know that you live in a world that hates you, but I commend you, verse 13, Yet you hold fast my name, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is where we get the next blank in your notes there, uh, the word faithfulness again, under in 1B. He commends their faithfulness in verse 13. He's saying that even though you live where Satan's throne is, uh, notice the brackets at the beginning and the end of verse 13, I know where you dwell, I know where Satan dwells, He says that even though you live where Satan's throne is and you are threatened with compromise with sin every day, you have been faithful. You have been faithful, but it's a particular kind of faithfulness that he is commending. Because he's going to to condemn them for faithlessness internally. He says, I commend you for your faithfulness as a witness to the outside world. Antipas here was a martyr, which is just a word that means witness. And Antipas here is indicative of the kind of faithfulness that Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's talking about faithfulness in witness to the outside world. (laughs) That's a good thing, Jesus says. That's important. But, verse 14. Verse 14 is the but, hold on part where Jesus says, If you're not careful, you're in danger of losing even that outside witness. You're in danger of losing your external witness to the world because the internal workings of the church are the real problem here. You can take this to the bank, friends. When we value the things of the world instead of the things of the kingdom of God, we will forfeit our witness to the world. We will give up our role as witnesses of Christ. How many of us in love with the things of this world that are temporary have given up functionally our witness to the world? What do we have that's different to offer them if we are in love with those things? So they felt that tension. They were in that same world we live in. But here's my question. How many of us get to this place of being in love with, with the things of the world because we let you get there? How many of us struggle with love of things of the world because the church let you get there? That's the real issue at the church in Pergamum. There is no such thing as knowingly allowing someone else to compromise where it is not also your compromise. There's no such thing. For the people of God who care about the character and nature of the goodness of God over and above their own glory, to wittingly allow others to compromise with the world is to share in that compromise. How many people have you known who who said the right words, who declared Jesus with smiles on Sunday, yet had zero witness to the world because the church allowed the compromise of sin in their life to take hold? Whose fault was that? (laughs) The answer is yes. It was theirs and ours. Personal responsibility for another's growth in Christ. In Jesus' terms, personal responsibility for another's growth in Christ in Jesus' terms is held higher than we give it. And maybe even higher than our own if we know Jesus. The problem stated by Jesus here in verse 14 is this. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. The next blank in your outline there is Balaam, B-A-L-A-A-M. We don't have a lot of time to unpack this whole background. Um, long story short, uh, in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Numbers, if you want to look this up, chapters 22 through 4 in Numbers, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, story of God's work in the people of God. Uh, Balaam was a prophet who was hired to pronounce a curse upon the Israelites. He was, he was paid, in fact, to curse the Israelites, uh, but as you may know, he was prevented by doing so because God spoke through a donkey, and, uh, and Balaam ended up pronouncing a blessing on Israel uh, because, well... Israel were God's chosen people, he even went so far, uh, Balaam went so far, uh, because he was in it for the money from King Balak, he, he went so far to have this king send in Midianite women to seduce the Israelites, and many from Israel were seduced. So, so long story short, Balaam, this whole story about Balaam became proverbial, became this stock way of talking among the Jewish, among their tradition, that of a false teacher who could be bought with money. Balaam became a tradition among the Jews of a false teacher who could be bought with money. He became a way to explain how someone influences others into compromise. So that is what was going on here in Pergamum. Uh, We don't know all the details Uh, but we know it was about sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Uh, In other words, (laughs) those within the church, we're talking about believers, those within the church were participating in pagan practices, doing so in a manner that deserved to be called by Jesus here, holding to the teaching of Balaam. Uh, They were Balaamites who were swindled into following a huckster. And some of us, don't know the real thing when we see it because we don't know the real thing. We've been following after Midianite women without even knowing it. And some of us are allowed within the body of Christ to follow after Midianite women even though we watch it happening. But you know what? Really, I'd rather not. That's that's too ugly. That's too... Hard for me is what we say. (laughs) So that we don't have to we don't really have to create an environment where accountability for growth in Christ is truly the main goal. We can keep an environment happening where making ourselves temporarily feel good is the main goal. That happens in churches constantly. Churches that care preeminently about growth in christ and getting to know the savior who died for us is is a more difficult but far more important thing for us to do there were also some verse 15 this is the next thing about which they were confronted by jesus there were some among them who held to the teaching of the nicolaitans that's the next blank in your outlines N-I-C-O-L-A-I-T-A-N-S, Nicolaitans. <clears throat> he says, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Again, we don't know a lot of the specifics uh, that were being taught, but we know that they were false teachers. Uh, we know of false teachings today. There are churches in Green County that teach that the Bible is not the inspired written word of God. There are churches that teach that Jesus was not born of a virgin. There are churches that teaches, teach that the practice of homosexuality is okay. That so-called same-sex marriage is okay. There are churches that teach that Jesus and Abraham and Muhammad and Confucius and Buddha are equal. And that consequently there are many ways to salvation. We don't know the details of the Nicolaitans here in Revelation. But I don't think it matters because the the problem is that without a core foundation of belief on which we stand as Christians, there is no defense against false teachings. So, So do you know the basics of the faith such that you are ready to provide a defense for those who ask? Or, or when somebody asks you what your church believes about such and such, you, 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 uh, Are you well-versed enough on the fundamentals of the exclusivity of Jesus and the Word of God so that when a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon comes to your door, it doesn't rattle your faith? Do you Do you know Scripture well enough that if I preach the heresy of the so-called prosperity gospel, you will know that it's false teaching. If you do not know those basics, you are a Nicolaitan. You're falling prey to the same kinds of things warned here in Revelation. If you're content to allow compromise in the lives of others or in the church, and that's cool with you, then you are a Balaamite. And Jesus is telling us here that the Pergamum Christians were in danger of compromise because they allowed that to happen within their own ranks. Verse 16 lays out for us the choice that Jesus provides. He says, therefore, repent. In other words, turn from sin toward godliness. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is a threat. Let's call it what it is. This is a threat from Jesus, a threatening image. Either he comes and judges hearts now through the Holy Spirit's work in your life, or he comes and he purges sin from hearts by force of his will that cannot be stopped. So the choice is there in verse 16. And here's the familiar refrain, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's saying, are you hearing me? Are you listening? Do you understand this? To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. This was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. And the tradition was that that at the coming of Jesus, the Ark of Covenant and the hidden manna will be made available. that, That food that will satisfy forever. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In those days uh, when someone was on trial. When the judgment was brought down, they would be given a white stone or a black stone, black for guilty, white for not guilty. The the end of this passage here is saying that Jesus is coming to reverse the guilty plea we all deserve if we repent of sin and follow him. I want you to feel the weight of this passage a little bit I think that we must we must feel the weight of the truth that Jesus is going to come again someday soon and he's going to look around and he's going to say give me back my church i'm coming to take my church home This church isn't your church, it's not my church, it's not ours to fritter and play around with, as if what we're doing here is not of eternal consequence. When you serve and teach kids in the nursery, it's so that they can know Jesus. It's not so that we can babysit. When you play your instrument in worship, it's so that people out here can know the full weight of the the eternal consequences of what we do here. It's not so that you can have fun picking. This is Jesus Christ's church not ours to be played around with, for our purposes. And when our purposes invade what goes on here, we will allow compromise to happen at all levels, personally and corporately. And we must protect this. We must protect this at all costs. It is our personal responsibility to ensure that our lives, individually as part of the bride of Christ for which he is coming back, are ready and prepared to meet him and to love him forever and to have intimate relationship with him. So I beg you to search your heart to make sure you are not careless with God's people. There's too much at stake in the kingdom of God for us to believe that compromise with sin is okay. For our own lives, for the life of that person sitting in the pew next to you, for the life of that person with whom you're in small group a Christ-like sense of your personal responsibility to make the bride of Christ ready for Him. That's a heart that reflects Jesus' heart to bring people to Himself so they will repent of sin and know Him and spend eternity with Him. There's no greater treasure than that. And that's what we're all preparing for.